0: This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannelgraph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We've been talking a lot about being a faith prepper. The entire idea of directed prayers is designed to help us prepare our faith for the tough times that are coming. And if you don't think tough times are coming, I, I do. I hope I've spent enough time driving that point home. If you don't, that means you've got you literally have a head in the sand and you're not seeing things for how they really are. We're heading into not just silent persecution, but we're heading into a time that that Jesus promised that we would all suffer persecution, and all who desire to live godly in Christ, the Scripture says, will suffer persecution. So if you desire to live godly in Him, it is coming. One of the attributes of being a faith prepper, and I'm going to be sharing some of these with you in the weeks to follow, is to learning how to pray at all times. At all times, not just when we feel like it, not just when we're beyond our ability to handle it ourselves, but to pray at all times, but doing that by letting the Holy Spirit through God's Word guide and direct our prayers. You know, uh, in my most of my spiritual life, I directed my prayers. I had a prayer list. Which is good. And, you know, you, you start out with two or three names at the very top, but your family members or close loved ones are, are people that you're really attached to emotionally. And you spend a lot of time praying for those. And, and then as your list begins to grow, it becomes somewhat unmanageable. And now you have 50 names or 70 names or 100 names and you kind of rattle through those, not really even know, even remembering why you're praying for some of those or if their situation has changed. It's kind of like once they go on the prayer list, how do they get off of them? There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes our prayers, my prayers, have been just rattling off a bunch of names. However, if one of my kids or, or my brother or something came down with cancer, I think my prayers would be a little more than just rattling off his name. Ah, uh, bless Ken, if he's struggling with something that I'm intimately involved with. When we're asking the Holy Spirit to direct our prayers, what we're asking him to do is to take God's word and to teach us to trust God's word and to pray according to God's word and to teach us somehow to take everything to the Lord in prayer at all times. Everything. So I just want to share just a couple verses with you to give you just an idea of, of what the Lord said about prayer, and what the epistles preach about prayer, just some of the other things in Scripture. I won't uh, I won't ask you to turn to this, but if you remember in Luke uh, 18, Jesus is telling this parable about prayer, and he talks about this king and this woman that wants justice, and the king is not interested in the woman's needs, she's not interested in what she has to say, but the woman comes and petitions night and day. You know, I, I need to be heard, my rights need to be taken care of, you need to respond, and the king finally says, You're wearing me out. So, therefore, not because I fear God, not because I care about you, but just because you're wearing me out is a difficult parable to, to deal with because it, you know, it almost puts God in a bad light from a human vantage point. Because of that, I will grant your request. And then Jesus says that uh, this is a parable to teach us to pray and never give up. And then he ends it with this statement. And it seems disjointed. It doesn't seem to really fit on the surface. After that, that difficult story about this king and this woman and the conclusion that we're to learn to pray at all times, he says this, Nevertheless, in spite of what I just shared with you, nevertheless, when a son of man comes, will he really, really find faith on the earth? And you sit back and go, how does that relate? It relates perfectly, because prayer is the ultimate action of faith. I'm not going to handle it myself. I'm not going to try to, to demand my rights. I'm not going to manipulate the circumstances. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm not going to do anything, because my faith in my God is so great that I'm going to take everything to him in prayer. When the Lord comes back, will he really find faith manifested in a childlike trust and dependency in prayer on the earth? Sobering question, is it not? Then there's this passage where Jesus is in the garden and he's struggling and he's getting ready to go out and pray three times, and he knows that he's going to be betrayed, and he knows the physical torment that's coming. But more importantly, he knows that for a period of time, when God blots out light on the earth for those three hours, God himself is going to pour the wrath of our sin on his own son. Something Jesus was not interested in. Not really excited about going through, yet it was necessary. And so he goes and he prays and he asks the Lord if, if the Lord can just take this cup away from him. If it's possible, is there another way? And his disciples, of course, who he just had the last supper with, he, he spent, you know, um, uh, John 16 and 17 and even 18 teaching them about prayer and unity. They were asleep. They were. Fast asleep, they they could they they saw Jesus out there falling and at the rock, and they saw Jesus who looked like he had great drops of blood on his forehead from it, but he couldn't keep their eyes open, and they went to sleep. And Jesus' admonition to them was this: Watch and pray. Pray, not just stay awake, but if you're going to stay awake, do something. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Why? Because your spirit is willing. But your flesh is weak. It's weak. Got to get the flesh up under our own uh, subjection to that. And how do we do that? Well, we... It's hard. We can't. Our, our mind wanders. We, we're we not really sure what to pray for. Sometimes our prayers are selfish. Sometimes our prayers are primarily about us. Sometimes we have a hard time praying for people that we really hope God doesn't answer this prayer and bless them because they've irritated us or something of that. nature. I mean, how do we get control of that? And then there's this amazing passage in Romans 8. In my opinion, the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. Right before the all things work together for good, right before those whom he foreknew he predestined, right before that I am convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, he says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What weakness are we talking about? Are we talking about weakness like to get up and go to work in the morning? Are we talking about weakness to stand up against sin? Are we talking about weakness to uh, speak the right words? I mean, what weakness are we talking about? Well, he tells us. The weakness that he's talking about is our prayer life. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. We don't know how to pray. The Holy Spirit will help us in our weakness, And that weakness has to do with our flesh getting into and manipulating and corrupting our prayer. How does the Holy Spirit do that? The Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity who lives in you, like I wrote about if you've read them, I guess it was Saturday's email, that we are the only people on the planet that have the Holy Spirit living within us. That's what the church is which really, if you think about it, makes you a superhero. It makes you something beyond just the flesh because you have the ability to rely on the God himself that lives within you. For the Spirit himself, when I don't know how to pray and I'm weak and I'm struggling, he makes intercessions for us with groans which cannot be uttered. Literally, and you know, don't get confused on this one. This is not talking about tongues, and it's not talking necessarily about the groans. It's, it's the idea that He's making intercession for us in ways we don't even understand, that we can't even articulate. How? How is that happening? Next verse it says, "Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is." Talking about the other two personalities of the uh, of the Godhead, but He. The Holy Spirit makes intercession. God now is is praying for us, for the saints, according to the will of God. Every time you get down to pray, every time that you're struggling in your prayer, every time that it seems like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and going no further, every time you're like, I don't even know how to pray for this situation, I'm overwhelmed, what do I do? Every time your pain or your worry or your doubt is so thick and so great that you can't pray, that's the time the Holy Spirit prays for us, makes intercession for us aids us in our prayers if we sit back and are directed by him. A couple other passages just to give you an idea of of this praying at all times. This is the famous one. These are the cliff notes, the bullet point memos that uh, Paul or the Holy Spirit through Paul is leaving the church in 1 Thessalonians. And, of course, we're to rejoice always. How in the world do you do that? How do you rejoice always in a world that we're living in right now? How do we rejoice always when there's divorce and there's betrayal and there's corruption and there's death and there's hurt? How do you rejoice always? Well, you have to pray without ceasing. And you'll find that once you're praying without ceasing, that everything changes. You begin to get God's perspective on things and begin to thank him for everything. Everything. I oh, thank you for the situation I'm in. I mean, how can Job praise the Lord? Yet he does. And it comes by having an interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ and one of his three friends that come visit him. In everything they give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ, through Christ, by Christ for you. Pray without ceasing. And then when it comes to your spiritual arm, remember we was talking about that? Put on your spiritual armor every day. Well, here's the last part of that. And take on the helmet of salvation. I got that. That protects my mind, you know, to, to let me know that I am saved and, and I'm not going to fall prey to the the ploys of Satan trying to make me doubt my salvation. And I'm going to pick up the sword of the spirit of the Holy Spirit. He says, which is the word of God. And now I'm fully equipped. My feet are shotted with the gospel of peace. I have this breastplate of righteousness on this belt of truth, a helmet of salvation. I have a shield of faith. I have a sword of the spirit. What do I do? Where do I go? How do I fight? praying. You pray. Sunday morning, early morning devotion times, when? Always. You pray always. Our major major function as part of Christ's army with spiritual armor on is to pray, to ask our commander-in-chief who empowers us to empower us. And I pray always. How? With all prayer. And all supplication, here's the key point in or directed by the Spirit. I pray, not just on my own, willy nilly, shoot an arrow prayer here and see where it lands and shoot an arrow. Oh, just bless them, Lord. Just bless them, bless them, bless them. No, I'm praying in the Holy Spirit. I'm praying directed by the Holy Spirit. And I'm being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the church, for the saints. For the called out ones, for each other. Now, how does that work? So this week I spent quite a lot of time in prayer. And in addition to you know praying through Ephesians, it has been my practice, like ever since I've been saved, to go through the book of Proverbs every day. Couple of days, couple of months out of the year, I don't get to Proverbs thirty-one. Last month was one of them. But you know, the first of the month, I'm in Proverbs one, the second Proverbs two, and I do this every single day. And I have done it for years, and did it, them did doing it this last weekend. Well, how can you still get things out of a book that you've read twelve, or a chapter you've read twelve times a year for thirty years? Because God's Word is inexhaustible. God's word is is magnanimous. And so I just want to show you a couple things that the Lord showed me in spirit-directed prayers. Just all I'm doing is sharing my testimony with you. First one is found in Proverbs 30. This was just last night. So last night I'm looking at Proverbs 30. Go ahead and turn to it. We'll come back to Romans. Proverbs 30. And I'm, I'm thinking about faith prepping. I'm thinking about the times in which we live. I'm thinking about the culture in which we live and the mindset. I'm, I'm thinking about how my kids are raised in this world. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about the next generation. I'm looking at the corruption that's going on in, in Congress and in Washington. I'm watching our news media lie about everything, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody calls them to task. Nobody, it doesn't really matter anymore. I and mean, we're just, it's, 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 it's insane. And we're supposed to be raising children and grandchildren to live truthful, honest, God-fearing life when we're surrounded by adults of prominence that exist exactly the opposite. How can our kids not be tainted? How can we not be tainted? And our grandkids and the church. Lord, what, what is the world like? This is the prayers that I was having yesterday morning before I even opened up the book of Proverbs. So I turn to Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 14. Share with this with you before. It's a picture of who Christ is. It confronts man's knowledge and man's wisdom, and it gives an incredible example of who we are. The word of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel, you get that out of the way. Verse two. Surely I am more stupid than any man. And I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither I've neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. There's an assessment here of who he really is. Lord, when I look at you, when I look at your truth, when I look at the culture in which I live, I was, it's me too. I'm seeing that I know nothing compared to what you know. my my On my best day, my most righteous day, the scripture says that the best thing that I ever do is filthy rags. I mean, there's so much of you more to learn. So why don't I do that? It was really simple. I live in the Laodicean church age where I don't think I need anything. And the Lord looks at us and says, don't you realize that you're poor, blind, wretched, wretched and naked. Verse number four. Steve, who has ascended into heaven or descended? You? No. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? You? No. Who has bound the waters in a garment? Did you do that, Steve? No. Who has established all the ends of the world, of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name if you know? That's yeah, humbling drops you to your knees when you realize that that is our God. That is who we serve. Wow. Well, well, Lord, so what's going on here? Well, it's really simple. I have laid out my word for you, and yet you choose to ignore it. I have laid out exactly how I want you to live, and the stuff that you agree with you do, the stuff you don't agree with you don't do or argue with me. Do you know what this word is, Steve? Verse 5. Yes. Every. Every. Even the ones that I don't like. Every word of God is pure. It is refined. It is like silver. He, the Lord, is a shield to those who put their trust in him. I know, Lord, but. I know, Lord, But, no, do not add to his word. Verse 6, lest he rebuke you and you, not him, be found a liar. When our culture says one thing or our sincerely held convictions say one thing and God's word says another, If we say God is wrong and we are right by our actions, he will rebuke us and it will be us that's called a liar and not him. All right, Lord, what do I need to do? Two things I request of you, of God. Deprive me not before I die. Number one, remove falsehood and lies far from me. That's about content here. That's about riches, That's about wealth in this world. That's about things that that rob us of our devotion to him. And give me poverty nor riches. Why? Just feed me with the food allotted to me, to my portion, what you have desired for me. Why? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord, or I don't need him. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my personal God. Well, I know, but there's others out there. No, don't talk about others. We're talking about you. Verse 10, do not malign a servant to his master, including my servants, lest he cursed you and you be found guilty. But, Lord, you don't understand the times in which we live. You don't understand how we were raised and what we were taught. And, and maybe you don't understand the rules that apply to success as we defined it in our country. No, I, I do. But you, Steve, you, church, need to understand the culture in which you do live. Verse 11, there's a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother, and that is this generation. There's a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet it is not washed from its filthiness. That is this generation. There's a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. Pride and arrogance, that is, this generation. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives. Go on Facebook and say something someone disagrees with. That is, this generation. They do that to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among men. Holy Spirit's directing prayers to Scripture, and all of a sudden we're beginning to see, this well, this. is this, just tell me what happened to me. This is where I live, Lord, so, so what am I supposed to do? What what possible hope is there at all? Well, Steve, your problem is the fact that your God is too small. Do you remember two days ago when you were in Psalm 20, Proverbs 28? Remember the passage? Yeah, read it again, okay? The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Because they're righteous. Because they're serving a righteous God. Okay. Because of the transgressions of a land, many, many are its princes. But by a man, not many men, not the church, not a gang, not 51% of the electorate. But by a man, but not just any man, a man of understanding and a man of knowledge of the things of God, a man who's able to discern right and wrong and to actually act upon that right will be prolonged, even in a nation like ours. Sometimes the voices of darkness are so loud and so united that we feel like, or sometimes I feel like, well, who am I? I'm just I'm just one guy, and and who are we? We're just 50 people, you know. What what can we do? You can do anything. A man, one man, a single man of understanding and knowledge of the things of God can turn everything around. I was reading, and I, I don't have the details now. I'm sorry about that. But I was reading a story recently about the single man, the priest who stopped the slaughter of Christians in Rome at the uh, at the arena. And they would bring these Christians out, and the gladiators would hack them up, and the crowds would just be cheering, and he could not take it anymore. And he jumped out of his seat, and he ran down there, and he said, this is an abomination to the Lord, and this needs to stop. There was dead silence in the Roman amphitheater. Can't ever remember the, um, who the emperor was at that time. And one of the gladiators walked up and ran him through with his lance. And the man fell to his knees, and his intestines spilled out, and he died. And no one cheered. And they all sat in stunned silence as this innocent man who had the, the audacity to stand up for things that they felt even in their own heart was wrong. And they left. And there was never once from that day on another slaughter like that in the amphitheater of Rome. One man. One man can change anything can change anything. Proverbs 28, same chapter. Happy is the man who was always reverent. Man, that is one thing that I have noticed so much so in my generation, but in this next generation with my kids and grandkids, there's reverence for nothing. Nothing. You know, my parents and my grandparents especially were far more reverent than we were. We were the rebellious generation. We were the, you know, the the '60s and '70s and all that kind of stuff. And and my my grandparents and pastors back then were just aghast at, at the things we were doing. It's nothing compared to what's going on now. And and our nation, our young people, even us as older adults, have lost the sense of awe of God and lost the sense of reverence. But the proverb says that happy is the man who is always reverent. But he who hardens his heart against God and his reverence will fall into calamity. I am praying and I'm asking the Holy Spirit to take the words that I'm reading and to show me something. Lord, what what are you saying here? What, what What are you doing? Well, two key words here, happy and reverent. Happiest day of your life is going to be the day that you know exactly what God's will is for you. When I hear people say that I just want to know what God's will is for my life, usually that means who am I going to marry, what job I'm going to have, should I buy this house or not buy this house, where am I going to live? How many kids am I going to have? You know, it's always about us, always about us. But the day that you discover exactly what God's will is, his purpose, his calling for you, everything changes. So we live in this kind of culture, as terrible as it is, And yet God has called us to tell us that one man who will take the time to have knowledge and understanding of the holy things of God to be reverent can change everything, can be happy, can be joyful. So, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is your will? How do we determine exactly what the will is of you? Now, do you know where that passage is found? We've talked about it a dozen times here. You want to know exactly what God's will is? It's found in Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you would just, just turn back to that. I want you to see it in your own word. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's a series of statements and it's a series of uh, of uh, conditions. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I'm begging you by the mercies of God that you, Present your flesh, not your spirit, not your soul, but your bodies. There's a reason for that. A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Period. If then. If conditions are met, then you will be able to know with certainty to prove exactly what God's will is for your life, and not just his general will, his perfect will, his good will, the the will that's well pleasing and acceptable to him. Changes your life. Makes you wake up in the morning with a purpose other than just going to work and making money and getting older. It changes everything. begins with some questions on what basis? What am I supposed to do? What is God's view of all this and why? How does this whole thing work out? So let's just take verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, on what basis? By the mercies of God. I am telling you, Begging you to give your life to Christ because of what He's already given to you, because of the mercy He's shown you, because you know you're you're not on your way to hell. That He has forgiven you of His sins. That He's He's placed all that on His Son by the mercies of God. That's that's on the basis this request is being made. So what am I supposed to do? That you. It's not something God takes from you. It's something that you do that you present as an offering. You present not your spirit, which is eternal, not your soul. Scripture here says that you present your flesh, your bodies. The flesh that says, I want to do it this way. The flesh that says, I want to feed feed me and make me happy and make a lot of money. The flesh says, that I want to do what I want to do because I have a sincerely held conviction. The flesh that says, I don't care what the word of God says. I, I will change it. I will ignore it because I think it should be different. The flesh that says, I am rich and I am wealthy and I need nothing, Revelation chapter three. You present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice which means it's all his. I can't because I've screwed up too bad. I've messed up. I have I I've, I've squandered all of the of value in my life. God won't accept me. He will. So God's view of your sacrifice is this. He calls it holy. Really? With all the scars and with all the the problems and with all the baggage that I'm bringing because of the bad decisions that I've made, he takes it and calls it holy, set apart, sanctified as the saint you are, which is the email that you got this morning. Holy, and more importantly, acceptable. He will accept your offering unto God. And why would I do that? Because it's your reasonable Service, it's reasonable. When I was uh, an accountant 30 years ago, we would always look at a set of financial statements and we would give it what's called a reasonable test, a test for reasonableness. We're looking at it and we just want to see as a viewing them whether or not anything pops out that seems unreasonable. If a guy has a business and he makes $50,000 and he has $20,000 in expenses and 12 of that is meals, that's unreasonable. That doesn't fit. You understand what I'm saying? And it would immediately jump out like a red flag with the IRS. That's not reasonable. What's reasonable for $30,000 of expenses for meals would be X amount of dollars. The reason why we're doing this is because it's only reasonable after what God has done for us. It's, only, it's natural. It's expected. Why wouldn't we? So how do we go about doing that? What's the if-then part of that? Romans twelve two. There's our action, there's God's response, and then there's the end results. Here's the if part, my action. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not think like this world. Do not act like this world. Do not have the same convictions that this world has. You are otherworldly. You are pilgrims and sojourners passing through. This is the kingdom of Satan. You belong to the kingdom of God. Do not be conformed to this world. When we have our affections on this world, when we want this world to, to give us our satisfaction, if our self-worth is tied up in where we live or how much we make or, or things that feed our flesh, we will be conformed to this world to meet those needs. But you're not to be conformed to this world. And how does that happen? Because God does something. When you surrender yourself to him, he begins to change your thinking. You have to be transformed. The word here is where we get the English word metamorphosis, where you go in a worm and you come out a beautiful butterfly. You'll be transformed from the inside out by this Holy Spirit who lives in you. And you'll do that by the way that you think. You'll see things differently. You'll act differently by the renewing of your mind. And once that happens, you'll no longer have the carnal mind of this world, but you will have the mind of Christ, and you'll be able to prove with certainty what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How you worship the Lord, how you respond to the culture around us, what really is the purpose of you being alive? All right, Lord. So, how am I not conformed to this world? What do I need to do to not be like the spirit of darkness that inhabits those who don't know you in this world? Where does that come from? You remember the word happy and reverent? Happy is he who is always reverent. Classic verse on happiness and blessedness is found back in Psalm 1. It's a prescription here. So the Lord brings me back here. Blessed is the man who does certain things. Well, what does he do? Well, first of all, there's a couple don'ts. Blessed is the man who doesn't do this, don't do that, and you better not do that. Then what do I do? Then you do the do's. If you, if you, I mean, it's it's a prescription for blessedness, for happiness. And I know I've shared this with you before, but if you were to interpret literally. In the Hebrew, what the word blessed means, it doesn't mean this. Oh, blessed. It means, oh, how blessed. Overwhelmed by the blessedness. Blessed is the man who doesn't listen to the counsel of ungodly people. That does not follow the advice of this world in which we live. Coming in and telling me how to be successful and what I need to do a man who doesn't stand in the path of sinners. I'm not hanging around people who have different views than I do. I'm not learning from them. I'm not accepting them. I'm not enjoying what they do. I don't sit in a seat of scornful people who hate God. I want nothing to do with the people God hates, period. And again, there's this imagery here of walking and standing and sitting. And it's almost like you're having a conversation with someone, with an ungodly person. They say something that, that gets your attention. So you grab them by the arm and stop them and say, wait a second. And you look at them in the face and say, well, what exactly are you saying? And the conversation is a little more intent. We're not worried about where we're walking. We're worried about the conversation. And now I'm standing in the path of sinners. And I want to hear more about this. Here's a park bench. Let's sit down and tell me more. Now I'm sitting in the seat of the scornful. These are the don'ts. You want to have a blessed life? Don't do this, period. What am I supposed to do? You fill the void. But his delight, ah, delight, yes, is not the Psalms or the prophecy or things like that, but the law of the Lord. I want to know what pleases God. Because nothing else really matters. If I please somebody in this world, I get nothing. But if I please God, I get everything. On Billy Graham's 80th birthday, they, um, they asked him a question. I read this this morning. They asked him a question. They said, what if you discovered most about life in your 80 years? Of course, he lived another almost 20 years. And he says, I learned how short it is. How quick it is. And the older you get, the faster it goes. Those of you who are getting a little older, have you noticed that? And even when you're really young and you have a baby, oh, look, we have a baby. Next thing you know, the baby's six. Well, you've aged six years too. Now he's 12. Now they're 20. What happened to those years? It's it's shocking. His delight is in the law of the Lord, not in accepting the world views but being what Christ called us to do because this world is so short and eternity is so long. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law you meditate. That's not just reading. It's reading over and over and over again. That's thinking about it when you're driving in the car that's ruminating on it as you're having a conversation with someone that's focusing on God's word. That means you can't wait to just turn Facebook off. I can't wait to go spend some time with the Lord and talk to him about the stuff I've learned, to meditate in his law day and night. Being a faith prepper means that you take God's word for exactly what it says. And all of us would probably say, well, I I do. I do. Uh, I believe everything in God's word. Okay. Then I have a couple, actually I have quite a few. I have quite a few controversial issues that we face as Christians today. And I'm going to ask you how you feel about them. What is your opinion about them? I'm not going to tell you today what the word says uh but I just want I just I think you're gonna be shocked as you go through this. Abortion. We'll look at abortion, homosexuality, sex, divorce, and education, just to start. Those are pretty hot topics today, wouldn't you say? Okay. How do you feel about that? Does a woman have a right to end the life of a unborn child under any circumstances? It's yes or no? The Bible teaches it one way or the other. Well, how about rape? How about incest? How about the physical life of mom? Are those exceptions? We've accepted. Pro-life people have accepted. The rest of the world doesn't accept any of those at all. Does does the Bible say that a woman has a right to do that? And if so, what would you do if it was you or your daughter? There is a right or a wrong answer here in Scripture. And all of us have an opinion. Homosexuality is it a sin always in all circumstances period or did God somehow create both heterosexual and homosexual people well I-, I used to I knew a lady who you know of course had a view on homosexuality that homosexuality of course is a sin until her son came out as gay well. Okay, well, I love my son. Well, if I love my son, then I have to love to sin. And so she started going with him to a gay church, and the people at this gay church are just the most loving people ever. So are people at Friday night at a bar. You can be absolutely accepted for anything that you do. And so, therefore, because of that experience, it changed her whole view. Well, did God's word change? Does God's word say right and wrong, left? I mean, black or white? How the situation turns out? Sex is premarital sex always a sin always, even if it's the day before your wedding, even if you just love each other more than anything, is it or is it not? Is divorce proper as a believer as divorce prop is it proper for a believer to divorce their spouse and if so, for what reasons does the bible say is incompatibility one of those reasons? Whose responsibility is it? Here's a tough one. Whose responsibility is it biblically to educate your children? Is it yours or is it the government's? That'll split the Christian church right down the middle. What does the Bible say? Does the Bible say one or does it say another? Or does the Bible leave it up to you? How about tolerance, our children, church, or our friends? Is it true that Jesus never judged anyone, and therefore neither should we? We should just live in this blissful, don't ask, don't tell. How many children should a family have? Or is birth control and family planning biblical? Or is it a sin? I just, I I just, I, I can't take any more kids. Okay, so if you don't think you can take any more kids, does God say it's okay for you to limit this family size that you have? Or is that something that we just decided to do on our own because technology allowed it? I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what the Bible says, but the Bible does say one thing about every one of these. Should women be pastors? Or, this is the big one today, should women have leadership roles that involve those leadership roles over men? Should a believer have friends that are non-believers? And if they are, how close should those friends be? Can they be your bosom buddies? Can a non-believer be your best friend? Or at best, a mission project and an acquaintance? The Bible clearly speaks about that, whether we choose to accept it or not. Our home life, spiritual leadership, or the environment. Home life. Should a man be a stay-at-home dad? Uh, no. Okay. Should a woman go to work outside the home and put the kids in daycare or public school so she can make money and fulfill her calling in the workplace? That one stings, doesn't it? Does the Scripture say something about that? Absolutely. And if you found out exactly what the scripture said, and it was contrary to how you felt, would you do anything about it? Or would we add to God's word or take away from God's word and then wonder why this clear calling he has in us is difficult to ascertain? Whose responsibility is it to be the spiritual leader of a family? Well, uh, the mom. She's homeschooling them. Really? Really? Does the scripture teach that? Is it somebody else's responsibility? Is it the father, the husband, the wife, the kids, or the church? Whose responsibility is it? And if you're a man and you're not the spiritual leader of your family because you've chosen to do something else, is that a sin or not? How concerned should a Christian be about the environment and global warming and saving the earth? Does the earth have a future? Do you know what the future is? Politics. Dating and marriage. Dating versus courtship. Islam. Or drinking alcohol. Should a believer ever vote for a Democrat? Should a believer ever vote for a Republican? Should a believer even vote at all? I mean, is your vote based on who you think the best candidate is Are we supposed to vote based on the candidate who holds on to the biblical principles the most? Which one is it? Should a believer ever marry an unbeliever? But I just love them. Okay. Should they even date an unbeliever? Well, I'm hoping by dating them that sometime somehow they will become a Christian. Does the scripture teach about this? And when it comes to dating, is that even biblical? The whole idea of dating. I mean, we all do it. And we, you know, we treat relationships like we do used cars The CarMax. We'll test drive it and see how it works. Then like, I'll get another one. But is that what the Bible teaches? Is the God of Islam with a small g the same God of the Bible? And is it okay for a believer to drink alcohol? I mean, these are, these are topics that are very hotly debated today. And every one of these, every one of these, the Scripture teaches on. Entertainment and money. This is the one that hits most of us the hardest. Entertainment. Should a believer watch or listen to a media that includes profanity, nudity, and sex? Every one of us would say, no, hopefully. Even if it's a really good movie we want to watch. Well, let's take it to the next step. Should a believer watch or listen to media that promotes anything contrary to sound biblical teaching? If it glorifies homosexuality although you never see the act if it if it if it glorifies sex outside of marriage although nobody ever uses a cuss word is it okay for a believer to watch those things does the bible speak about this issue and money how much money should a believer accumulate Oh, uh, we're entrepreneurs we live in america as much as we can or how much of their income should they give away? Does the Bible talk about how much income we should have and then how much income we should give away? And this stings. Every one of these, every one of these, we all have an opinion on. I mean, I, I would ask you how you felt about them, and some of you would go, yes, right, yeah. And other ones, you kind of go like this. I'm the same way. The ones that don't affect me, abortion, absolutely. money or media, entertainment, or stuff of that nature, that's uh, hitting a little close to home. So when we read these, are our opinions just that? Are they opinions or are our convictions based on Scripture? And once we find they're based on Scriptures, Scripture, are we willing to do anything about that? Are we willing to look at God's word and trust Him explicitly for what He says? So when Christ comes back, will He truly find faith on earth in our prayer life and our devotion to Him? Or not? Are we willing to change or not willing to change? I want you to remember the promise. The incredible promise of knowing God's will and receiving His blessings that are yours. How to receive God's will. Or know God's will. It's really simple. You present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God, I don't want any decision about my life anymore. I absolutely, 100%, without reservation, belong to you. And the first thing he'll do is start not conforming you to this world. He'll begin changing the way you view things, you think about things, how you spend your time, the friends you have, how you spend the waking hours he gives you. And then, when that's taking place, then you'll be able to prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's that's ours, to be able to know His will. And on top of that, to be able to experience this blessed life that others can only dream of. How does that happen? By the do's and don'ts. You do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. I don't want to listen to what lost people say which is pretty much our educational system our media system what our government says we're swimming upstream a true believer is i don't want to stand in the path of sinners i don't want to sit in the seat of the scornful i want all the don'ts taken out of my life and i'm going to fill those with the do's god show me exactly what your will is i want to delight myself and you now revealing to me exactly what your commands are and i'm going to meditate on those day and night to to make sure that I live for you. As we, as we see the day approaching, one of the things the Lord always does is he always gives us a choice. The choice. The choice is always yours. Literally, if you'll understand this, the promises belong to you. If you're not living in his promise, it's because you have walked away They're ours for the losing. You realize that? He doesn't give them to us if we reach a certain standard. They're ours. It's like in the Garden of Eden, everything was yours until you lost it. So this week the Lord was asking me what I'm prepared to do about it. What What am I willing to accept and not accept? So what I'm going to ask you to simply do is this in your prayer time, and I'm hoping you're praying more over the last month or so since we've been kind of focusing on that that you ever had before. And if you haven't, why? Why? When we're missing out on so much. Why? But if you have, begin to look at God's word <clears throat> as promising commands and commands with a promise. Whatever he says is true. And therefore, faith comes by praying and believing and trusting and acting out on what he says, not what the world says, not what I was taught in the Wharton Business School, not what the media says, not what my past experience has proven to me to be true, but to do exactly what God's word says and leave the results up to him. Amen? And this moves us one step closer to being a faith prepper. Let me pray.